Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you, your media support group for We the People. Jeffrey Epstein, is he going to finally implicate Donald Trump, who bought the Teenage Miss America contest and then bragged, I think it was to Howard Stern, about how he would go into their dressing rooms when they were naked and it wasn't that exciting, right? We have American concentration camps, we have voter suppression. What's it going to take for Trump supporters to see the light? Why is the IRS commissioner who is in charge of actually should be in charge of releasing Trump's tax returns to Congress if the law was followed to Richard Neal, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee? Instead, this guy is literally made a million is making a million dollars a year off a Trump property in Hawaii. And Trump put him in charge of the IRS. Tell me that there's not something really, really stinky going on there. Obviously, Paul Gunter just talked about Chernobyl. Gary and I just had an interesting conversation, and I'd like to reprise this and and put it out as a question. He asked, is it possible that America can recover from the Trump presidency and go back to something that resembles normalcy, or is it going to take a shock to the system before we see a change? And I pointed out that after John Kennedy was killed, LBJ was able to get the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid, the Great Society, massive support subsidies for housing, all kinds of incredible stuff done, pointing to the crisis of America having had a president assassinated, as particularly a very popular one like Jack Kennedy. So there was a crisis there that Lyndon Johnson basically used successfully and moved us in a more progressive direction. We had the crisis of 1929. That was still a crisis in 1932 when Franklin Roosevelt was elected in 33 when he became president in March of 1933. And then he instituted Social Security and unemployment, federal unemployment benefits and things like this, created the CCC, the WPA. So, you know, a crisis brought that about. So if it's fairly obvious from looking at American history, the crisis of the Civil War brought about Reconstruction. And then the failure of the crisis of Reconstruction became its own crisis, which led to the 1898 decision of uh, separate but equal, Plessy versus Ferguson. And then that created a crisis that, that arguably led to Brown v. Board in 54. Brown v. Board was its own crisis for right-wingers. That animated the entire Christian school thing. That, that brought us the Jerry Falwells of the world. That brought us, you know, uh, uh, you know an entire county. Um, uh, well, I, I believe uh, the state of Virginia for an entire year shut down their schools. Might be a county in Maryland. So I, I mix those up. But in any case, the, you know, we've seen where crises bring about change. And typically, crises bring about 
progressive change, even when they bring about conservative backlash in, in the beginning, then the progressive change comes out of that. And, you know, pointing to civil rights as the example after, you know, everything we went through after Brown v. Board. So the question, if that's true, but if that's true that it takes a crisis for America to act, is the Trump presidency in and of itself, in all of its various bizarre dimensions, is the Trump presidency itself, just four years of it, God willing, you know, he, he leaves office in 2021, is the Trump presidency itself enough of a crisis to provoke massive, widespread, systemic, deep-reaching, far-reaching systemic change, progressive change in America? And I think the fact that, you know, if you add up the, the, uh, the polls for the two or three most progressive Democratic candidates, they in total equal more than, uh, more than half, depending on the poll, but they, they certainly represent a significant majority of Democratic primary voters. And that tells me that the Democratic Party itself is going through change because we, we had these kind of middle-of-the-road presidencies with Clinton and Obama, um, and at least in terms of you know, what got passed, what policies were promoted, and, and what the priorities were. And now the Democratic Party is saying, you know, we'd really like to go back to FDR and LBJ. And realizing that LBJ's legacy was tainted by Vietnam, you know, nobody really wants to say his name out loud, but he did extraordinary stuff domestically. Uh, the, the war was an abomination. And he negotiated an end of the war in, in September of uh, 1968. And Richard Nixon inserted himself into that and told South Vietnam, the leaders, uh, to, to, you know, Anna Chenault and, and Madame Tu and all this stuff, you can hear it all in the Nixon tapes, basically, uh, you know, reached out and said, if you will refuse to go along with the peace deal that Lyndon Johnson has worked out between the North and the South, and again, this was in, in the fall of 1968, when Johnson's Vice President Hubert Humphrey was running for election against Richard Nixon. And Nixon reaches out to the Vietnamese and says, uh, just hang on and I'll make you rich. And of course, the Vietnamese said, the South Vietnamese said, okay, cool. And the Vietnam War lasted for another eight years. Um, so anyhow, these, the, we see these crises and, you know, Nixon's presidency in, and the end of it in 1974 with his near impeachment, his, his resignation, another crisis that, you know, brought us Jerry Ford, but then brought us Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter, at least in the first two years of his presidency, did some really great things, particularly around energy policy. And, in fact, had Carter's, uh, the energy policy that Carter put into position, actually legislation he passed and signed into law, in, in, uh, in the, uh, let's see, 77 and 78, as I recall, then we would not, you know, we would have, well, he, he wanted to roll out the nation's first solar bank, providing 20% of the nation's electricity from solar power by the year 2000. We would not have the global warming crisis we have right now had, had Ronald Reagan not taken a cue from Richard Nixon and cut a deal with the Iranians to hold on to the U.S. hostages to harm Jimmy Carter. So anyhow, as we look back at all these crises, I guess, you know, the, 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 another question that I would ask, and maybe we'll continue this in tomorrow, 
is, is the Trump presidency itself enough of a crisis that it'll produce progressive change? I think so. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. But I'm not always right. And this could cut a whole bunch of different ways. You know, they say as you get older, you get wiser. Well, I think that's true, but um, you also get under eye puffiness and wrinkles and you start looking older. And what can we do about it? Well, I can tell you, you know, so Louise absolutely loves this stuff. I have used it. Um, it's, it's great. Plexiderm. I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet or wrinkles or under eye bags, you can literally look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real live video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get my discount. That's TryPlexiderm.com with code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM. So, that said, Renard Loki is with us. Renard is the editor and environmental reporter with the Independent Media Institute, which also syndicates my work. Uh, when you read the articles that I've written on Salon or Alternet or Common Dreams or whatever, typically you'll see at the very end a tag to the Independent Media Institute. Renard is also a writer for them. And he's got a new piece out. It's the one I printed out. It's from Salon.com. It's titled, How Indigenous Peoples Won a Landmark Victory Protecting the Amazon from Oil Drilling. But it goes a lot deeper than that. Renard, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate Th it. Thanks for joining us. Tell us the story. First of all, frame it. What is the situation before we get into how they tried to solve this problem? Okay, well, Ecuador, as you may know, sits on a lot of oil. It's their main export. It's basically an oil economy. In 2012, the Ecuadorian government met with indigenous community members in the Amazon forest about developing that land for oil and fossil fuel. Then in 2018, the government divided the rainforest into 16 different oil blocks and then listed it for sale in an international oil auction. That's when the Warani people, one of seven different indigenous uh, groups living there, sued the government for um, making faulty, uh, faulty consultations back in 2012. Those consultations... Mm fall under what is known as free prior informed consent, FPIC, and it's guaranteed under international and national law in Ecuador. The, the judges decided last month that those consultations in 2012 were faulty, they were held in bad faith, the government basically tried to trick the indigenous people into thinking this was something good for them and did not give any indication about any environmental issues that could arise from oil development. So now, currently, that verdict temporarily and indefinitely disrupts the contemplated auctioning of over 7 million acres. It's around 12,500 square miles, roughly the size of Maryland. So it is a massive wow. victory for not only the indigenous people in Ecuador, but also for indigenous people around the world who are facing up against governmental and fossil fuel industry interests trying to develop their land, whether it's for oil or for mining. Now, mind you, the government is appealing, 
And since my article was published, a, a, a date has been set for July 1st. So this is a developing story. So are they appealing to their equivalent of the Supreme Court or their equivalent of a circuit court? I mean, yeah, you know. see, I guess it's the equivalent of an appeals court uh, in Ecuador. But I, I don't know if they're going to be able to do it because uh, the, the Ecuador, as you may know, uh, made history in, 20, in 2008 when they rewrote their constitution, granting uh, nature rights. Right. So that hasn't been invoked, as far as I know, in, the, in, in this case, but it may be invoked later. So they might be facing a constitutional crisis on two fronts. One, that they did not give a free prior and informed consent to those indigenous groups. And two, that they might be uh, running afoul of the rights of nature. Yeah, that's this is this is all absolutely fascinating. Renard is uh, we're talking with Renard Loki, the uh, editor and environmental reporter with Independent Media, uh, about his article published over at Salon.com on indigenous people winning this landmark victory to protect the Amazon from oil drilling. I'm sure a lot of our listeners and viewers are like, "Whoa, that's great information." Is there anything we should be doing or could be doing about this, or is this just you know? by letting us know the kinds of ways that we can, or at least in Ecuador, that they're pushing back, indigenous people are pushing back against the oil industry. Actually, there is something we can do. The Warani, uh, the Warani group has started a global digital campaign, uh, mm. basically saying the Warani territory is not for sale. It's garnered currently over 100,000 signatures, and in recent days, more than 30,000 people sent emails to the president of Ecuador, Lenin Moreno, basically saying that you can't sell, you can't sell the Warani territory. So it is a global campaign. And if your listeners are interested, they can look, up, look it up on Amazon Frontline. So that's the nonprofit organization based in California that has been working with the Warani on the ground in Ecuador and provided them with a lawyer, uh, Lina Maria Espinoza, who's been working very hard on this case. And one thing that your listeners... And if I, if I could, Bernard, what's their website? It's Amazon Frontlines. Dot org? Dot org, yeah. And is it Frontline or Frontlines? Uh, it is Amazon Frontlines, plural, dot org. Okay, so thank there you. there is a, a global a campaign there. And what your listeners should also know is that the global campaign is probably going to be a little more interesting right now because... Uh, in March, uh, Lenin Moreno, the president of Ecuador, signed a $4.2 billion loan agreement with the International Monetary Fund, part of which is earmarked for the energy sector. But the IMF managing director and chair, Christine Lagarde, said a key objective of this agreement is protecting, is, quote, protecting the poor and most vulnerable segments in society, unquote. So there is going to be a little bit of international uh, feel and in looking into what they're doing with this money, and is it going to be earmarked for sustainable energy? Fascinating stuff. Earmarked for oil. So there is there's a lot of a lot of touch points here, and it crosses across the globe. That's fascinating. Renard Loki, the article is over at Salon.com. He writes for the Independent Media Institute. The article is How Indigenous Peoples Won a Landmark Victory Protecting the Amazon from Oil Drilling. Renard, thanks for dropping by today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Great talking with you. Renard Loki. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us. Congressman Khanna represents the 17th District of California. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep Ro Khanna, as in Representative Ro is R-O, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A. Congressman, welcome back to the program. 
Tom, always good to be on. It is great having you with us. You know, back in the constitutional debate, when you read Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, there was a virtual unanimous uh, opinion, and it didn't change until after the War of 1812, that we should not have a standing army during times of peace. This is why the Second Amendment was written. If you do away with the standing army, what do you replace it with? Individual state militias. And the only limitation on the ability of Congress to spend, to raise taxes and spend money in the entire Constitution is in Article I, Section 8, where, where Congress, where they wanted to force Congress every two years to actually debate this question of, if we're at peace, should we continue to have a standing army? Because they were so worried about standing armies doing military coups and taking over countries, kind of, you know, Eisenhower's concern. And so the army is the only thing that cannot, by, by the Constitution, cannot be funded for more than two years to force that debate. And, and that every other year funding apparently is coming up here. What's the state of the military appropriations bill that's going to be Congress? If they don't pass it, we don't have an army anymore. I mean, this is serious stuff. Well, Tom, one of the reasons I love coming on this show is you're the only journalist who prefaces a question citing Madison's notes to the Constitutional Convention. But uh, we are far away uh, from our founding vision. I mean, I uh, the current budget that is going before the Congress is $733 billion. Barbara Lee and I had an amendment in the committee to freeze defense spending at the Trump levels of 2019. Uh, that means it would still be $717 billion, still $100 billion more than Barack Obama uh, had left the country with. And we couldn't get even uh, a majority of the, our Democrats on the committee. I think we lost the vote 7 to 26. We're going to rebring up that amendment to lower the defense spending. And I'm hopeful that it will pass because I don't think many progressives' votes will be there if the number remains as big. But Jimmy Carter ran on a 5% defense budget cut, and other than Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone is talking, maybe Tulsi Gabbard, a few others, I don't think anyone is talking really about uh, containing the uh, extraordinary defense spending. Yeah, and if you go back to uh, uh, the end of the Clinton administration, I, I believe, and I'm doing this from memory, so it's, you know, uh, but I believe that our total defense bill at the uh, for the 2000 year, the year of 2000, the, that last year of uh, of uh, of Bill Clinton's was in the neighborhood of 400 billion dollars. Yeah, I mean no, we're talking right. we're talking 700 billion dollars now, and uh, you know I, I could see the bump you know as a result of the, the 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 two wars that that Bush got us into Afghanistan and Iraq, but. This is just crazy. It's not even counting some of the outlays or the obligations we're going to have for those wars. And the argument I make to my colleagues is you can't be against interventionism and more foreign wars and then vote to continue to fund it. I mean, the right. current budget has the Overseas Contingency Fund, which is literally a slush fund for foreign wars. I mean, that's what they say. This is money that could is not uh, appropriated to a specific cause, but the president could use it for foreign interventions. Wow. Wow. Which is, uh, in my opinion, an abdication of Congress's not just right, but actual responsibility to declare war or not to declare war, to control, to control our behavior around the world in that regard. The president leads the army, but he's not the one who decides who to attack, according to the Constitution. And, and, and as you referenced, our founders did that on purpose. They knew presidents would want 
uh, whether it was glory back then or today, uh, high poll numbers or approval, uh, they realized the risk. And so they said, look, uh, 435 people who probably can't agree on much are going to have a much harder time agreeing to go to war than uh, a single commander-in-chief. And that's why they rested the authority in Congress. And by the way, when there have been times that we needed to declare war, like Pearl Harbor, we've been able to do so the next day. So I have no doubt that Congress would declare war if it was necessary, but it's supposed to be a very high bar. Yeah, Madison was outspoken about the danger of war to a democracy. I've got his quote at some length in a book that I wrote called We the People, um, but I can't remember it well enough to recite it right now, but one of these days. Anyhow, let's pick up some phone calls here. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us. Joe in Cupertino, California, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. You're Congressman. Good morning, Tom, and good morning, Congressman. I just, uh, I'm on page 140 with you, and I'm just thinking that we're missing the forest from the trees. Congressman, I'm in your district, and there's 900,000 registered voters in our county. We have more power than I think we really understand, but I don't see a lot of Bernie signs in the community yet. I guess it's too early. But in the reading that I do here on the next door, our little local Internet, there seems to be a lot of support for this economic turnaround, and I haven't seen it. I mean, I have seen more homelessness in America in the last 10 years than I can remember, and it's getting worse, not getting better. I, I, the economy is not the important thing. It's the, the standard of quality of life. And for us to be sitting here today uh, with these children uh, in concentration camps and sitting on our hands, um, let's say this. You're going to Congress, you're voting on things, and you're going to send it to the Senate, and then the Senate's not going to do anything about it, and we continue to do that. Well, that's what we're going to do with impeachment proceedings. We're going to hold those. We're going to have an open hearings, and then you can send it to so the Joe, Senate. So, Joe, what's your question for Congressman Khanna? Congressman, my question is to you, when are we going to act, as opposed to just putting words... We're not doing anything. We're just talking. We're not moving anywhere. We're, we Got need it. to move. Got it. Joe, I, I share your frustration. I mean, we have one uh, chamber of one branch of government. Uh, we uh, don't have the Senate. Uh, we obviously don't have the White House. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, uh, has a, a more conservative bent. Uh, so uh, the reality is whatever we do out of the House, we are faced with obstructionism by McConnell. We passed common sense gun safety legislation, not even going that far, just requiring background checks. We passed sweeping campaign finance reform. We passed legislation to get back into the Paris Accords. We're going to pass prescription drug legislation, but it all goes to die in the, in the Senate. So we need to figure out how we can uh, get uh, a Senate and a president that are willing to uh, work with a Democratic Congress. I, I'd say the only thing we have managed to concretely accomplish is stop some of the harm when the president had all three branches of uh, government. Kurt in Spokane, Washington. You know, when we talk about the language, it's clear that if we use the word concentration, you know, you're not getting your basic needs met, and it's causing people to die, whether it's on a small scale, large scale, let's call it what it is. Congressman? Kurt, here's what I do. I, I don't get hung up on the nomenclature. I just talk about the facts. I talk about the fact that you've got kids there that don't have diapers, that don't have toothpaste, that don't have uh, basic nutrition, that you've got a hundred people in a room that uh, can accommodate 15, and you've got uh, sometimes people who are, can't sleep on the ground because it's so crowded. Uh, I mean, these are facts. These are documented facts. And anyone who takes 
five minutes to read about it, we'll be horrified and we'll say nothing in our Constitution justifies this. I mean, we have a Constitution that gives every human being, every person who's in our borders, basic rights. And that's foundational to our democracy. You know, you look at some of the top performing people in the world and you wonder, how do they have all that energy? Well, it turns out there's actually an answer to that question, and it's called sleep optimization. Some of the world's leading uh, tech leaders in particular, the people who are just like buried in the science all the time, uh, they've developed this whole thing, sleep optimization. And while most Americans are not getting the sleep they need, uh, these folks are optimizing their sleep to perform at peak level every day. So how do you do this? Well, the first step is the pod by eight sleep, E-I-G-H-T sleep. It's the ultimate sleep machine. The pod is the first and only high-tech bed designed to help you achieve peak mind and body performance. Looking to sleep deeper? The pod dynamically adjusts the temperature on each side of the bed so you're both comfortable all night. Do you want to know your sleep intel? The pod tracks your biometrics while you sleep with no need for wearable technology. You want to sleep better? Enjoy personalized programs and coaching designed by experts guiding you toward true sleep fitness. Because the better you sleep, the better you everything. Try the pod for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup only at 8sleep, E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P dot com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. They already sold out their first two batches. They're going fast. For a limited time, you can get $150 off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. 8sleep.com slash Tom. Colt, Danville, Illinois. Colt, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. I heard you mention standing armies and... I have a philosophical kind of question, if you don't mind. You're both welcome to answer on it. But it seems to me the common discussion today minimizes, or I guess overstates the resistance the founders had to a standing national army. Uh, you could point to Federalists like Hamilton and Madison that took control of the militias from the state and gave more of it to the national if you go back to, I think it's Federalist 26, Hamilton went off at some length about how standing armies are a danger to peace. I don't know if you want to comment on that, Congressman. Well, let me say this. I mean, obviously, in the modern world, uh, we have a military. The question is, what is going to guide uh, American foreign policy? And I was down to Jimmy Carter, hearing Jimmy Carter in Sunday school, and he said something that I thought was rather profound. He asked people to raise their hand and say, uh, and volunteer, uh, what would make someone a superpower? And someone said a strong military, someone said an educated public, someone said an innovative public. And then President Carter said, well, let me tell you, I think what makes someone a superpower is a nation that would be sought after to make peace, a nation that would have the wisdom to help resolve conflicts and to be looked at as a model for, for justice in the world. So I, I, I think that's the vision of America that many progressives believe in, uh, and uh, that's not what our budgets currently reflect in terms of the massive defense increases. Yeah, and I just, I just found this on page 41 of my, my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Um, this is Federalist 29. And it's Alexander Hamilton. He says, if standing armies are dangerous to liberty and efficacious power over the militia, 
um, ought as far as possible to take away the inducement and pretext of such unfriendly institutions. A citizen's militia appears to me the only substitute that can be devised for a standing army and the best possible security against it. To render an army unnecessary by having state-based citizens militias will be a more certain method of preventing its existence than a thousand prohibitions upon paper. That's the Federalist Papers. So anyhow, <laughs> back, to the, back to the issues of today. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, I love you. I love that you do that, Tom, because it's important to reclaim America's founding and patriotism for, uh, from the ways the Republicans have distorted it. Thank you. Mark in San Francisco, listening on 9, 10 a.m. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan, or excuse me, uh, Congressman Khanna. Excuse me. Hi, Tom. Uh, hi, Congressman. Uh, I wanted to bring up the fact, I think the Democrats need to emphasize the fact the Republicans want to cut Social Security and Medicare, and that's a whole voting block of people that collect it. Could make a difference in, in a state like Florida. Mark, I couldn't agree with you more. It's a clear contrast. Uh, they are they want to cut it. We don't. They make this bogus argument about solvency, and there is one simple way to solve solvency uh, for years down the line, and that is to say that people should be paying a Social Security tax on income uh, over $250,000. Right now that tax is capped at 113000 If you got rid of that cap, uh, and tax people over 250000 uh, on Social Security income. You can not only uh, make sure there weren't cuts, you could actually increase benefits to keep up with the standard of living. Uh, and that is a huge contrast and difference of philosophies between Democrats and Republicans. David, listening on WGRN in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, Congressman. Uh, you're one of my favorite congressmen. Um, largely because you talk about defense spending, and it's something that I've been trying to reduce since I was in the Army way back in the 70s. And um, uh, have you talked with a progressive caucus about what is at stake, and have you tried to convince them? And um, I, I know there's some pretty good movies that would be uh, good to help them decide. There's one called Command and Control, which was about the... Uh, the uh, Titan II missile disaster in Arkansas. But I don't know. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that we could use to help convince people that we're, we're just out of control on defense spending. But um, what have you done? Yeah. And, Congressman, well, do, you, do you remember, if I, if, I, if I may ask, do you remember uh, Bill, William, Congressman William Proxmire? I think he was from Wisconsin and his Golden Fleece Award. Are you old enough to remember that? I, I'm familiar with it. I didn't know him, but I, yeah. I, I've heard of it. Just, yeah, he, yeah. I mean, every, and he was a Republican, as I recall, and every year he came out with his Golden Fleece Award, and nine times out of ten it was the Pentagon that he was giving it to, and it was, you know, he, he outed the $500 toilet seats and the $900 hammers and all this kind of stuff, and just every year he created outrage by laser-focusing on one single example that was meta to the entire mess. Back to you. Well, first of all, David, thank you for your kind, kind comments. And, Tom, since you brought this up, I will say, uh, you know, I led this effort on Transdime, where Transdime was forced uh, to reimburse the federal government $16 million. And what they were doing is buying small subsidiaries, supplying parts to the Defense Department, and jacking up prices almost 10,000 percent. It was so outrageous that, as you put it, even Republicans were uh, outraged with uh, what was going on in fleecing the, uh, the country. So you've seen, uh, first of all, not just huge bloated defense budgets, but also abuse by contractors and monopoly contractors. Uh, to David's question, I have talked to colleagues about it. I've made the point that uh, most people are sick of these endless wars, and they're 
sick of bloated defense budgets that aren't helping them, that our competitiveness would be much better off and we'd be much better off as a country making more strategic investments in education and infrastructure and health care and broadband that would do more to improve people's lives and do more to position America in the 21st century. And I've said, you know, there, there never used to be this par- fear of talking about strategic defense cuts. I mean, Carter ran on it in one in 76. Jesse Jackson uh, ran on uh, having strategic cuts in defense, reorienting the military and investing in domestic priorities. It's a popular message, uh, but uh, we just need to show a little bit more, I think, conviction in uh, uh, making the case. Laura in Chicago. Laura, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi, uh, both of you. Thanks very much for taking my call. Um, Representative, I'm asking you to um, take it personally into your, to the House and try to arrange a public health hearing on the, five, the health effects of 5G. Um, in the European Union, over 250 scientists and health professionals from over 40 countries have put out an appeal for a moratorium on 5G. And many of the countries are responding in the cities as well, Brussels, Rome, the Netherlands, Ireland, and they're putting a moratorium on 5G for further health effects. Um, the same technology that's being rolled out in 5G was used as weapons in World War II and is now being used as crowd dispersal weapons in by the military. Um, and this, uh, there are lots and lots so, of medical studies. Laura, that show Laura that I'm going to stop you right there. Congressman Kana, you want to respond to that? I, there were some inaccuracies in there, but I don't want to get into a debate with Laura. Well, Laura, I'm happy to look into it. I mean, I do think the country needs universal broadband, whether that's through fiber or other places. But uh, I understand 5G is going to require clustering of uh, some of the cell towers to get to, to, get to be effective. Uh, if there are health effects on it, uh, I'm happy to look at studies and make sure that we're uh, mitigating any of those effects. And I'm happy to have uh, my staff uh, take a look at it. Or you can email, email me, roe at roekana.com, and uh, send me what you have. Kathy in Edna, Wyoming, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Congressman, hi. Um, I, I have a problem with caucuses, and the Democratic Party uh, has presidential primary caucuses, and they're time-consuming, and I think it's a deter- deterrent to bring voters in, and why not just have ballot voting? And superdelegates, to me, seem to be in place to assure the DNC's establishment candidate is nominated. So what, what do you think, sir? And uh, um, I am opposed to superdelegates. I mean, I, I think that the people should decide who our uh, nominee is. Uh, I don't understand why I, as a member of Congress, should have any more say than you or uh, the 330 other million Americans. Uh, in terms of caucuses, uh, you know, I, I think certain caucuses are, uh, are healthy. I mean, I, I, I think the Iowa caucus, for example, uh, has uh, uh, focuses on grassroots campaigning, and you don't just have to go raise $25 million a quarter, and you don't have to just win media debates. You actually have to have uh, a strong grassroots organization. Now, I think we need to make sure that the early states reflect the diversity of the country and that there are primaries as well as caucuses. Uh, but my experience, having uh, been out to Iowa a few times for Senator Sanders, is that that uh, system actually rewards uh, retail politics, actually meeting with voters, talking to them, uh, and not just raising money and being on television. And apparently they just announced, I think over the weekend or maybe today, that uh, they're going to allow 
in some of the caucuses, and I, I don't recall if this was just in Iowa or if it was more broadly, uh, allow people to come in by telephone, and this will uh, open it up to people who are housebound or disabled or, or you know, can't get off work or whatever. So yeah, I think yeah. Iowa's caucus is about ten percent. They say are going to be folks who don't have to show up uh, live but can uh, vote virtually, which is going to be interesting because it's the first time they're doing that. Yeah, should be fascinating. Alan in Crown Point, Indiana, you're on the air with Congressman uh, Congressman Connor. Yes, Congressman. Uh, the Flores um, settlement agreement in 1997 mandated that immigrants immigrants can be only held so long. What is a common sense approach that we can use with the flood of people we have now to uh, to move people in a, along in the process at the border? Well, a couple things. Uh, one. Uh, we should increase uh, the amount of asylum cases. I, I think we can take uh, uh, more than uh, 20,000 asylum uh, it, it applicants in this country. And we shouldn't just have the presumptive denial of asylum that this administration has undertaken. Uh, that's what leads people to not go to the port of entries, but to try to risk uh, crossing the rivers or uh, coming into the country uh, through illegal means. Uh, second, uh, we should look at in-country processing, which the Obama administration had started, where people can actually uh, be processed in their home country or nearby uh, so that uh, we don't have this rush at the border. Third, uh, the detention. We're detaining way too many individuals. Uh, that we, there should be a presumption uh, against detention, especially if someone isn't engaged in trafficking and they aren't engaged in, uh, in, in, in criminal behavior. Uh, because uh, that's what's crowding uh, these facilities, and it's costing taxpayers a lot of money. Uh, that doesn't mean that they don't have to still go through the process and that they have to come uh, for their, uh, their, their court date or their uh, date in front of the immigration officer, uh, but we don't need to be detaining the amount of people we are. Those are a few ideas. Stephen in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yes, sir. Thank you for your time. I just had a question. Historically, um, we haven't declared war for many decades, and yet we've been in continuous uh, battles. Um, is this because the uh, upper uh, executive branch of government doesn't want Congress to declare a war because then they're obligated to pay all of our military men and women uh, extra benefits? Hmm. Steve, I, it's a good point. I, I, I am sure that it's... Uh, unfair on the men and women who have been fighting these these battles uh, not to qualify for those extra benefits if uh, if you're right that congressional declaration would qualify them for for more benefits but i i think it's really that the executive branch has uh, expanded their powers uh, that we were uh, willing to give the president a lot of authority uh, at the peak of the cold war uh, because we were concerned with the, the, the Soviet threat, and ever since then, uh, the presidents uh, have continued to expand uh, that power. Frankly, both Democrats and Republicans have expanded it, uh, and it has led to a policy where we have been in, I think, about 40-some conflicts since 1979. In comparison, China has not fought a war since 1979. So there is a growing recognition in Congress both progressives and actually people in the Freedom Caucus, that these interventions have not made us any safer, that they're actually draining our treasury and our country of vital resources that would be better spent in investing in people and communities uh, here at home. Ed, in Belfair, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, uh, Representative uh, Rokana. 
My question has to do with um, Kellyanne Conway, that uh, the Democratic Party constantly lets her get by with uh, some, some outrageous statements, actually. Um, I, w- I wonder why um, the Congress and the Senate don't speak more to all the legislation that has been passed in the House that the Senate won't bring up. I, I would like to understand why that isn't happening. Ed, it's a great point. Uh, the Speaker Pelosi would love to, to have heard that because she's got a chart where uh, of all the 200 bills that the House has passed uh, for raging on gun violence to campaign finance reform to health care uh, to uh, climate change, uh, and all of them are stuck without the Senate doing anything. The problem is it's, it's, it's very tough to get the message out. Uh, the, the media focuses on the president uh, in general. Uh, they don't focus as much on members of Congress or what the House does. And this president, they take most of the attention. You know, when I go on cable news, unlike this program, I get asked almost incessantly about subpoenas and what the committees are doing. So it's just a very difficult environment to get a proactive message out. Uh, but we're, we're trying our best and uh, uh, hoping that uh, we do the town halls and have grassroots activists that can get that message out. Paul in San Francisco, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. I have a suggestion as for these illegal wars. If the House or Speaker Pelosi would let it be known that if Trump started any war, he would be impeached, it might possibly discourage him from attacking Iran or some other country. What is your thought? Well, it's not a bad idea, actually. I, I, uh, we have an amendment to, uh, that's going to come up this week to defund any activity uh, in Iran. So if the president then goes and attacks Iran to start an offensive war without authorization and de- in defiance of congressional's uh, Congress's spending power, uh, I think that is the type of uh, case uh, for, for impeachment uh, that our founders envisioned. So uh, I, I think it's something worth considering. Robbie in, uh, is it Tierland or Terraland, Texas? Terraland, Texas. Okay, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Oh, thank you. Um, my question is, um, I'd like to see the Democrats get more organized as a body, and not just the Congress people, but the senators and the state Congress people to put forth the um, information that the Republicans are trying to destroy Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. You're not doing that. The word is not out on that. People don't understand that. And if they understood it, almost everybody, every family has someone who's receiving one of these benefits, and America loves these benefits. But you have to say so. You have to get it out there. You have to get the word out. And it doesn't matter if you don't have the TVs. Once you put it... All of the Democrats are talking about it, from the state houses to the federal house. You will get attention on it, but you have to get the people involved. And then I completely agree. I'm not doing that. You're the second caller who's mentioned Social Security and Medicare. It's it's the core of what Democrats stand for in terms of basic retirement security and health care for everyone. And the Republicans don't. and, And we should hammer home that distinction. Johnny in Lamarck, Texas. You are on the air with Congressman Connor. Good afternoon, uh, Congressman and Tom. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah, just fine. Go, I have a go theory, for it. I have a, I have a theory about the, the crutch on, uh, on the effect 
that uh, overbloated military uh, budget and a 24-7 military on call has on the behavior of various politicians, especially the Trump administration's John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. And I'm thinking much, and Tom, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it true that at one time uh, police in England did not carry firearms when they did their patrol duties? That's right, up until about two decades ago. Okay, so my theory is is when you force people to engage in their intellect and use their rely on people skills and develop that people skills muscle, they're more likely to carry out their police duties in a more civilized way and uh, arrive at goals that involve nonviolence. Likewise, I think we have in our country too much military budget set aside, and you alluded earlier, Congressman, to a slush fund that allows for the engagement of military uh, activities around the world without congressional approval. So I'm thinking that's why Trump is the way he is, because he's intellectually lazy, and he knows he's got 24-7 military at his disposal, and this is what we're suffering from. Johnny, thank you for raising that point. Uh, and it's interesting to me that we've had so many calls uh, echoing what you've said, that uh, uh, the bloated military budgets are... Uh, not in their national interest, that they're leading to these endless wars. And many times people in Washington tend to dismiss this as, oh, that's a foreign policy issue. You can't fight elections on that. Uh, but I, I don't think that this is some uh, abstract foreign policy issue. This is a country that most people, they understand that these bloated military budgets, uh, including uh, slush funds for overseas interventions, have really done our country enormous damage. Uh, they are not in our national interest, and that they have cost us the opportunity of investing in things such as getting people health care, uh, Internet access, uh, infrastructure, revitalizing downtown. So uh, I will continue to uh, make that argument, uh, and I'm hopeful that others will as well. Joe in Gordonsville, Virginia. We have a minute to the break. Joe, quick question for Congressman Khanna. Uh Yes, Tom. How you doing? Good. Go for it. Okay. Congressman, uh, I was listening on one of my progressive shows on television this morning, and they say Trump's going to put that question in for the 20 census. Are, are you a citizen? After the Supreme Court said, he said no. He keeps doing what he wants to do. Can anybody stop him? Well, Joe, I appreciate your asking that. I had tweeted out saying, well, maybe this is a, uh, a decent note for American democracy that you have a Republican justice, uh, uh, John Roberts, uh, uh, ruling against a Republican administration, and the administration's going to comply with the ruling. And my brother had texted me saying, uh, don't be so sure. I wouldn't be praising anyone yet. And sure enough, a day later, Trump goes and reverses his own Justice Department and now is trying to get around a Supreme Court ruling. I mean, it really is precedented. I'm hopeful that Justice Roberts will stick to his guns and, and rule what's patently obvious to everyone, which is that Trump is using a pretext as a rationale for inserting that question. Dave in Charleston, South Carolina, listening on iHeartRadio. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Being that the White House has not had a daily briefing in months, what are your thoughts on the Democrats hijacking that time and, and having their own daily briefing to get the word out about what we're doing and what the legislation we are passing? Your thoughts? 
David, it's a good good thought. Uh, I know the speaker has a uh, press conference. I don't know if it's weekly uh, or uh, more frequent. Uh, and the press is out uh, in, in outside the chamber uh, every day, and most members talk to them. Uh, but the, the challenge is that the president still has a uh, a large microphone, and it's very very difficult for us to. Uh, attract attention through traditional media. So I think we have to be more creative. We have to uh, go outside the traditional networks or traditional cable news, use social media, go on independent uh, 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 television shows and radio shows, and really work to get the message out through as many means as possible. Mark in Houston, Texas, listening on AMA 20 there. Uh, Mark, you're on the air with Congressman Khan. Yes, Congressman Khan. I'm an independent voter and just disgusted with the Democratic leadership. We see Mueller going to be testifying in a few days or weeks. No McGahn, no Flynn, no nothing. Don't they have a sergeant of arms? Can't they enforce a subpoena, put these people in jail or fine them? I mean, the backbone of the Democratic leadership is gutless. It's shameful. They're letting him get away with such crimes unprecedented. I would add Susan McDougall went to prison for refusing to testify. Uh, Congressman Connor. Mark, I uh, agree with you that there should be consequences to uh, the refusal to testify. Back in Watergate, when Nixon threatened not to uh, have his White House aides uh, testify, Sam Irwin, who was running the Watergate committee, actually threatened to have the sergeant of arms go and arrest folks uh, or find folks, and that quickly got compliance. So uh, we know that that can work, and I would support uh, this, the speaker of the leadership uh, making it clear that the sergeant of arms is ready to act for people willfully defying subpoenas and make there be a financial price uh, to, uh, to, to defying Congress in the way they have. Bill in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yes, hi guys, I uh, appreciate the opportunity to ask a question. My question is basically how the progressive movement, and as Roe is the vice chair of the caucus, how the movement can advocate for change. And as a, as a lifetime Democrat, the progressive movement is the most exciting thing, in my opinion, to happen to the party uh, in 50 years. How can the movement advocate for change given the establishment positions? And I'm particularly prompted on this question by the speaker's recent comments somewhat dismissively about some of our new freshmen. Well, Bill, I appreciate it. I I've been a supporter of the speaker. I remain a supporter of the speaker. I don't think her comments were uh, well-received, and I don't think there was any need for those comments. I mean, they're, just because people are casting votes that are uh, a few people and not uh, going along with the majority uh, doesn't mean that they're wrong. I mean, th this country has had an extraordinary tradition of dissent. Most people today recognize that Barbara Lee's lone vote against an unlimited authorization of force uh, was correct. Uh, so I think uh, two things to your question. Uh, first, the progressive movement in Congress has never been stronger uh, than it has been in the past. Now, it's still up against a lot of establishment uh, uh, forces. It's still up against uh, inertia. Uh, but we have at least 90-some members in the progressive caucus and a lot of energy among these new members. Uh, second, uh, it's going to take Time. I mean, the Congress is probably the hardest thing to change. I think it's easier to get uh, a progressive president. I was saying we can't get Vice President Biden's climate change bill, which is much more moderate than uh, many others. We couldn't get a vote of that today in the House. So 
the only way that this is going to change is citizen-inspired movements, people like you getting active, uh, and having uh, many new people elected at all different levels of government. Jonathan in Seattle. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Herman. I appreciate it. Saw you on Bill Maher. Thought you were great. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Rokana, I would like to ask a little bit of a dual-pronged question. Uh, in contrast with the 2016 election, where the Democratic side had two candidates, one of which seemed uh, anointed and the other could barely get a question, do you think that the current DNC lineup of 23 candidates is doing a disservice to our party? And secondly, do you think that an establishment candidate like a Biden or a Harris would be sufficient after a Trump presidency? Or do you think that that establishment candidate does overall hurt a progressive agenda? Well, I don't think having 23 candidates is a disservice. Uh, I, I think they all are going to ride, mobilize their base as long as we all come together. And I think the field is quickly going to get widowed out by the time you get to the third debate. Uh, so the fact that we've had six, seven months with all these candidates, I, I think, is fine and uh, helps uh, get the party's uh, perspective out. Uh, look, I'm for Bernie Sanders. I'm one of his national co-chairs, so obviously I'm uh, uh, biased. Uh, but I think a progressive is, is, like the Sanders or Warren uh, has the best chance to win against Donald Trump because they're going to talk concretely about how to improve people's lives uh, and recognize that the system for the last 30, 40 years hasn't been working and people want a clean break. The best response to right-wing populism is a thoughtful, reflective, uh, uh, progressive policy. Congressman, thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. His Twitter handle is RepRoKana. You can reach his website at Kana.house.gov, K-H-A-N-N-A. He is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Boy, after a wild 4th of July weekend, I really needed some CBD oil to just, you know, let it all go. Just relax. Uh, it doesn't get you high, but it just it's a great anti-inflammatory and pain reliever. And the very best CBD oil out there is New Leaf Naturals. It really is. Louise and I use it, uh, the New Leaf Naturals CBD oil, and we love it. CBD oil is not intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory pro properties. And the brand that I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It is 100% organic. It's highly concentrated. It contains no additional additives. It's grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U leaf. New is spelled N-U, not the regular way. N-U. N-U-leafnaturals.com. And save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafNaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, NULeafNaturals.com. Let's check in with Talk Media News. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Alan Ratner's new book. And on the line with us is former Ohio Congressman Bob Nay, the author of Sideswiped, uh, now a reporter with Talk Media News. Bob, welcome back. What's up in the world today? 
Well, thank you, Tom. I have one story that everybody is going to hear about, and I've got another story they aren't. But with the citizenship question first, you know, because that's in the news a lot, uh, we thought this was over with, and it's obviously not over with. Uh, there was the citizenship question. The Supreme Court kicked it back. The president lost on the issue. He couldn't put the citizenship question in the census. We all know that. A lawyer who was on vacation from the Justice Department was summoned back by the district judge because the president tweeted last week and said, I'm going to attempt to put this in here anyway. Mm -hmm. And that lawyer didn't know what was going on. Now, those teams of lawyers from Justice Tom are off the case, and they have a new team of lawyers. And the president tweeted this weekend that he is potentially going to do this citizenship question on the census by executive order, which, as the census is being printed, that would have to be an addendum. So, well, assuming that it's actually being printed, all we have is is the word of of the word, <laughs> you know, of of the uh, right. of the secretary, um, which I'm not trusting. And uh, right. apparently, the Trump administration even lied about when the deadline for printing was. I mean, they they lied at least ten different times to the Supreme Court, according to what I'm reading. That's right. And friends of mine who are kind of in the know in D.C., involved with the White House, uh, basically tell me that a lot of this is occurring because the Justice Department is saying one thing, <coughs> the people overseeing the census another, and the president a third, and they are constantly reacting to the president with his tweets, changing the game plan, frankly, for adapting to this court case or not. Right. So it's just total confusion via tweet. Obviously. So, yeah, and, and Wilbur Ross, the, the Commerce Secretary and the former co-owner of that bank in, what was it, Crete or wherever it was, some yes. offshore island where all this money was laundered, much of it by Trump's buddies. Uh, anyhow, uh, the billionaire who, by the way, Forbes magazine called a scam artist and a hustler. Wilbur Ross is in charge of this process and seems to have kind of lost control of it. But the question in my mind, Bob, is where did where did the Justice Department, where did Bill Barr come up with a new team of lawyers in the civil division who were willing to take on basically a lost cause? I mean, is this is this the pro-Trump contingent of lawyers that they were able to scrape together out of justice? Is oh, this yes. the suicide squad? Did he dump the old lawyers because they so embarrassingly showed up in court last week and said, we don't know why the president tweeted this. This is all we know, but we're here. Um, you know, what? what's the story behind the story? Yes, that's the, that's the lawyer that came off vacation, and now they're unable, frankly, to go in court and argue what he wants argued. So as we understand it, they have this new team of lawyers, which they've dug up from somewhere within the agency. Also, we don't know. Uh, it, there's no transparency on the hiring practices, Tom. They could have hired, <clears throat> excuse me, three or four lawyers this, this past week, and we don't even know it. You know, there's, there's really he no might have just hired a bunch of lawyers that he saw on Fox News over the last six months and threw him into justice, and boom, he's got his new team. Yes, and Bill Barr's never going to tell us what's going on. You know, and the Congress takes a good solid year to look over what happened this past year when hiring practices, you know, et cetera. So sure. it's, it, they can do a lot. And, and the second story <clears throat> relates to that, and we've talked on your show about this before. Nobody will carry this story, but there was a German-Iranian father, and he wanted to travel to the United States to attend his son's funeral. He was denied a three-day visa because the United States said he was using fraud or willfully misrepresenting a material fact to get to the United States. 
and Tom, his name is Dr. Sayed Shahram Irambi, and his 20-year-old son, Erman, was killed in a car accident in D.C. And so this man, Irambi, has been in uh, Germany for 40 years. He's a human rights lawyer, and he had a 10-year visa under the Obama administration. He had a 10-year visa to come back and forth to the United States. Also, his son's um, mother is in the United States, and he's very stable. You know, he's got this business in Germany, and it was revoked, his 10-year visa, in May of 2017 after President Trump took office. Hmm. Well, the point to this story is this is going on every single day around the world, and when the press inquired on this story, they're being told by the embassy, we can't discuss someone's personal information. Well... Mr. Arumbi gave permission to discuss his personal information, and the embassy won't. We know of other cases, and I personally have got these documented, of cases, Tom, where the person says, why was the visa denied? And these are people, of, uh, brown people, I call you know, of color. And why was the visa denied in Asia for someone's husband? And they, and they tell the woman involved with the visa, we don't have to tell you. Hmm. So it, it, it's happening, and the reason I bring this story up, nobody's going to carry this story today, but except, you know, your show. And I bring it up because immigration is being carried out, embassy after embassy around the world, and we, I think we will find out by the orders of the White House. So and basically, there, there, probably about half the countries of the world cannot send a citizen, actually probably a whole lot more than half the countries of the world, their citizens can't visit the United States without the advance permission of the United States in the form of giving them a visa. And Correct. the Trump administration, you're, it sounds to me like what you're saying, Bob, is that the Trump administration is selectively denying visas to people based on the color of their skin or their religion. Is that right? Yes, this is yes, this is absolutely. This is a German Iranian, forty years in business. He's a lawyer. His son died in an automobile accident. They said you're trying to defraud getting into the United States. Right. Why which, would this be done? Which he clearly was not doing. The guy's had a, a legal pra a law practice in Germany for forty years, he, and he just yes. happened to have been born in Iran. But he's a German. In fact, I read the article, Bob. You, you shared it with me a couple days ago. The guy says, yeah. "I'm a German." You know, <laughs> he's a German yeah. citizen. It's insane, Bob. Nay with Talk Media News, the author of Sideswiped. Bob, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, I always learn something from you, Bob. I always do. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for being with us today. It's been a fascinating day. It's gonna, it proves to be a more fascinating week. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.